0: Welcome to the Curious Farmer podcast. My name's Kate and I'm a curious farmer. In 2012, my husband and I started Leap Farm. We apply ecological principles to try and benefit the environment while producing great tasting food. Our endeavour has led to more questions. So join me as I get all the dirt straight from the farmers, chefs, scientists and people who love to eat good food about how we can make informed decisions about the best ways to grow, shop and eat food with our health and the health of our planet in mind. I want to start this week's episode by saying thank you for all the lovely feedback you've given me. In this week's episode, we get a perspective about what regenerative agriculture actually is, some of the methods we can apply on our farm or in the garden to improve soil. This week's guest is passionate about urban farming as well as larger scale farming. I'm talking with Christina Giudici, who is part of FIMBY, which is Food in My Backyard. This is a business that she started over a decade ago now uh, and was started so that she could help people and work alongside people, empowering people to be able to grow produce in their backyard. The business has moved up and down in relation to other work that Christina's had going on in her life, and at the moment, where's Fimby, Christina?
1: Um, Fimby's a beautiful little trickle alongside me, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just me, um, and I have a handful of clients that I see on a monthly basis, and I do a few designs each quarter, and um, but it's, it's fairly low-key, but it's where my heart lies and it's eminently flexible. So yes. it moves up and down according to the space that I have for it or my whim at the time and also my financial needs. So if I'm earning really good money doing something else, there's incredible flexibility with FIMBY. And if I don't have a lot of other um, consulting work, then I can, I can boost FIMBY quite quickly and then it becomes more, in, more important as an income source. So, Christina, how did we actually meet?
0: I can't even remember how we first met,
1: whether it was... I think I saw you talk at a Women in Agriculture thing at the Copping Hall maybe four years ago. Yeah. And it wasn't long after Mick and I had bought our place at Bream Creek and and I was in the throes of having an incredibly long list, which I still have, of all my brilliant ideas about what I was going to do there. And... um, it was a tremendous relief to meet and hear from someone who was in a similar sort of similar pathway but combining your professional work with developing things at your farm yes okay Um, yeah so I think that's where I I sort of saw who you were and then I sort of thought to myself I have to um, contact her and stalk her a bit yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh well it's a symbiotic relationship like roots and mycorrhiza really Mm. That's right. <laughs> so, you've got the property in Brim Creek and I've been talking to you over the years about some of the interesting stuff that you're doing there. I kind of think that you're a bit of a compost queen. I do love compost, yeah. Oh, so do I. <clears throat> so, <laughs> I wanted to talk about and your background, your ag science background is actually as a soil scientist, isn't it?
1: Well, I did a, an ag science degree which is really general and my in, my initial interest in that was actually in Insects in entomology, pollination, yeah. biology, so on the plant side of things. My first real job out of uni was in the soil science area, in soil education um, and regenerate. It was a farming for agriculturally sustainable systems in Tasmania was the acronym of the time and it was out of the decade of land care, right. um, national land care program stuff. I spent a couple of years in the ag department in the soil science group yeah. and had some amazing mentors in that space. So soil and soil health is something that you still do a lot of yeah, work with. and it's kind of my favourite hobby horse. I have a few, but in terms of um, what can I contribute to the world um, or what am I most interested in in the world getting right, it's soil health for sure and regenerative practices that do that. So can
0: you just explain what regenerative farming, regenerative agriculture,
1: regenerative soil practices is? So everyone probably has their own take on it and you can go to the sort of technical techniques straight away. So it might be minimum tillage or direct drilling or multi-species cover cropping. So there's a whole suite of possible tools to use. But at its core, it's about um, sort of like the old slogan of the triple bottom line, it's about looking after the environmental aspects of the land, the water, the ecosystems that we live in. It's looking after the people who are interacting with that. So either the farmers so that they can remain financially stable uh, and also human health from a physical and psychological and spiritual and social point of view. So it's a holistic approach and it's about producing food or producing fibre or producing the things that we need in a way that increases the stability diversity health flexibility opportunity of the system that we operate in and so you can look at that really holistically from the air to the water to the soil to the um you know plants the people so yeah you can kind of talk about in really vague motherhood statements or you can get to tin Tax and say for our sort of climate and our sort of soils and our sort of enterprises what are the ways that we can do things and a lot of it I think i mean i'm I'm not a regenerative farmer in that I'm not um spending my whole livelihood producing meat or fiber or milk or anything like that um but all the awesome fantastic regenerative farmers are incredibly good observers, and they have taken time to watch what's going on, watch how things respond when they try stuff so I think that um that idea of you know the fukuoka um one straw revolution um book which he you know he talks about do nothing farming which is not actually doing nothing but it's about questioning everything do I need to do this Mm -hmm. so you know the farmers who typically would um turn over the land do I need to do this what happens if I don't do that I might leave a bit and see oh geez perennial grasses are coming back what happens if I don't actually add any fertilizer oh shit there's a whole different suite of species have just emerged so that kind of question, observe, see what happens. So,
0: how, uh, what are, what are so so? you talk about some of the tools that we can use to help regenerate our soils. What are some of the ways that we can better regenerate our soils? So in our operation, we've got pasture that's never been turned over, well, not for 30-odd years or more. It hasn't had any superphosphate put on it for over 30 years now. Um, we run cattle, we run goats, we've got trees, we've also got grass and we've also got some areas of erosion and I look at those as failures and my heart sinks every time I look at them and I sort of look at our soil and I'm thinking more and more about our soil and thinking well what can I do to actually help improve soil Mm. so what are some of the things Mm. that that
1: that farmers can actually do to help improve their soil. I think um, there's a set of quite well-known principles and that the trick is then um, working out how they apply in your particular situation. And a really good thing to do is to go out and dig a hole with a spade so that you can actually have a look at the profile, the soil profile and the roots and what they're doing. Um, What sort of grasses do you have in your pasture? Are they a mix of perennials and annuals? And if they're perennials, have a look at what their roots are doing. Um, And if you have different... Um, aspects or types of land unit that you're kind of getting to know are they really different in their soil profile do the roots behave differently on that slope compared to that low point there and that can give you a clue about what might be the right way to interpret these principles so the principles are you know cover always have cover as much organic matter as possible how do you get that well in your grazing operation you want the roots to grow really long and then nip off the top so that they come back and leave some of their residues behind to, to disintegrate. And so you're fixing carbon <clears throat> in
0: the soil by causing the roots of the perennial grasses to actually die back?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know whether you'd say fixing carbon, but you're putting carbon organic in. Organic matter. Yeah, organic matter in, which will be there for a while at least, um, and potentially long time if you don't turn over the soil So having, and there's people with a lot more knowledge and skill than myself in um, grazing management, but everything that you can do to have the plants growing strongly, as you know when plants are growing strongly they're exuding all sorts of sugars and goop and, and things into the soil and fostering the community of microorganisms that do an exchange and say thank you very much for the sugar, here's some phosphorus or I'll go and get some blah blah, I'll dissolve those minerals over there for you. So the strong, the more stuff you can have growing, the better. In a pasture situation, that can be enhanced by intense grazing pressure and then a long rest. It can also be enhanced by the diversity of species that are there. So people talk about direct drilling five or more plant families into their pasture. That can be really challenging if you don't have the right gear and if you have a thick sod. So there's a sort of technical problem there. So... I'm waffling a little, but I think digging a hole and having a look, observing closely, getting to know what your species distribution is and how it changes in your um, across your paddocks in the drier areas versus the wetter areas, and then uh, in the eroded areas, why are they eroded, and they probably need to just be you know left alone to heal, and and it's usually or very often in Tassie a case of if it's active erosion it's because there's a drainage line and can you divert that and just let let things stabilize and so the flow of water off
0: the land is actually what's causing the erosion of the the topsoil
1: very likely or in in at our place at at Bream Creek it's not the topsoil that it's eroding it's the next horizon down where it's a bit dispersive so it tunnels a little bit it's right. not like some of the east coast soils that are incredibly dispersive but we have beautiful topsoil like it's gorgeous Mm. it's dolerite derived it's stable it's fertile it's it's really awesome and then the next horizon is just because of the nature of the soil formation there is a little bit dispersive so in in um, drainage lines that don't run all the time but when they do run they really pump um, there can be tunnel erosion in a small it looks like a wombat hole you know then you can follow it up the slope and see where it might have collapsed over time and so on So for something like that, the healing of that will be to divert the water at the highest point you can off so it doesn't come down that stream and then either fence it out if it's being trafficked by um, pasture animals or if it's just the wallabies, they probably don't worry it. And then work out, what do we want to do with this? Is this a good spot to throw some trees in? Um, Or do we just need to um, make the landform stable? with a bit of intervention, either through putting some rock checks or or just shaping things so that we're not concentrating the flow, and then in time it can sort itself out. Do I need to plant something to stabilise it? So the secret to erosion is minimising velocity and volume. So having a look at, you know, why is there water concentrating in this point? Is there a, a road culvert up there, or is it just a naturally the point where this entire catchment collects and can I potentially divert some of that to drier places and relieve the stress on this streamline. For people
0: who are interested in their soil health in their backyards, Mm. getting back to your other bit of life that's close to your heart, Mm. what sort of things can can people do to improve the soil in the
1: suburban context? Mm. So all the same principles apply but we do treat them a little differently in the backyard context. So cover, really important. And there's a unique potential um, challenge for backyard gardeners because it's quite popular to have raised garden beds and often when people install those, they'll bring in a soil mix from a landscape supplier, which is really essentially potting mix of some sort. It's often got bark finds in it, a bit of topsoil from somewhere where someone's built a dam. You know, you you kind of get a, a bit of a lottery of what you get. So if you're working with uh, a raised bed and imported soil, you have to turn it from a potting medium into actual living soil. So lots of cover, always making sure the surface is covered, lots of addition of organic material and lots of addition of life. So worm juice, worm castings, homemade compost, um, even purchased compost that you've then let kind of mature, um... And I've seen some of my clients over the years go from a potting medium in their raised garden bed to worm-filled, beautiful, rich soil. And having plants growing in it, of course, is an essential part of that conversion. So keeping and if you're gardening just in the soil that was in your backyard, same thing. Cover, always having it covered, never having it bare. Um, lots of addition of garden, of, of homemade compost, um, mulches that can break down, like pea straw, if you can afford it, <laughs> yeah. um, or raked up leaves. So yeah, adding adding cover, adding life with some compost, and having things growing in it is really the essential things. Um, so actually,
0: having plants growing in the soil is the f- one of the first steps to attracting more life to the absolutely,
1: soil. Absolutely, yeah. Even if it's weeds, like yeah. it's better to have weeds growing than bare soil. And weeds are there doing the thing that they do. They're probably better at like flat weeds are better at growing in compacted soils than tomatoes, yeah. so they'll turn up in your pathways. You know, if you've got all bare patches where it is a bit compacted. Um, but they're doing a fantastic job. They're turning the sun into carbon. You know, taking carbon out of the air and then they're exuding sugars made out of carbon and sunlight into the soil, which is promoting all of that root zone life, which is you know changing everything, creating aggregates in the soil and then you're getting gradients of oxygen and you're getting humus formed and so you get all this fantastic cycling because something's growing. Um, So that's how I make myself and my clients feel heaps better when we have semi-abandoned <laughs> garden patches that are, feel- that are waist high in mallow and, chi- and chickweed. I'm feeling happier about the yeah. weeds in my garden yeah. at the moment as we, well. We tend We're not right to now. call them weeds, we call them a multi-species cover crop. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And they are improving the soil for sure. Of course then there's the issue of if they've set seed. Like I have in my backyard soil an incredible seed bank of weeds, so I'm always going to have weeds. Um some, some of my clients are incredibly diligent and, and manage to manage their weeds before they set seed and never put weedy things in their compost. And so all of the volunteer plants they have in the garden are not weeds, they're lettuces and silver beet and leeks and, and things like that, um, which is amazing. But they're pretty rare. I have to say that in my ornamental garden, which is a cottage garden, which I
0: absolutely adore and it's starting to look spectacular, I've noticed that the weed... Burden has changed over mm. the seven eight years that I've been weeding that garden. The previous occupants of the the house and the garden used to use glycophosphates to spray mm. weeds, and I have a no no weed killer mentality mm. or no inorganic weed killer mentality. And I've noticed that just by hand weeding mm. and being quite sensible about picking the right times of the year to, to weed is that my, my weed burden has changed yeah. so much over the eight years. Yeah.
1: And there's a lot to do with um like we, we used to raise rabbits here in, in the backyard for meat and each morning I'd pick a, a couple of buckets of greens for them and so having lots of chickweed and stuff like that was great. And they love dandelions and dandelions are really valuable feed for them. So when I first started gardening here I used to you know occasionally I'd spend ages picking you know digging out all the dandelions and then they'd come back again and I'd be like oh the buggers you know and then once we got rabbits I was looking for dandelions and you know within a year it was like I need some more dandelions (laughs) (laughs) they're all gone because I was harvesting them for for a purpose and so I saw them really differently yeah Yeah. similar doc is a little bit similar like the rabbits ate that with gusto and now we don't have rabbits and I've got doc emerging more problematically yeah. You need to borrow one of my goats. Are they into it? Oh, yeah. They're yeah. into everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so,
0: Christina, one of the other things that I've spoken to you about in the past and I'm still interested in and haven't really got my head around is biochar. Mm. And firstly, what is it? And how useful is it
1: to soil? Mm. So, biochar is charcoal and it's a subset of charcoal which is intended to be used to enhance life. So biochar, bio meaning life. So it's clean charcoal that's been that can be made from any material, wood or um, rice husk or any any sort of organic material. But it's intended to be either put into the soil to help soil and plants, or fed to animals. So in Europe, most biochar, the the largest percentage of biochar is actually used in animal feed. Fed to animals. Mm, it's incredibly valuable as an a feed additive.
0: Wow, I thought. All the data out there for human health, for instance, was that charcoal is a carcinogen.
1: That's what I've heard too. Yeah. I think it depends on, so um, charcoal is actually formed by pyrolysis, which is a part, if you think about striking a match, the flame that you see is the combustion of the gases that comes out of the wood. And then if you lick your fingers and hold the match, you end up with a little black stick. Yes. So, that's part of the process where the, the carbon in that wood hasn't combusted, it's pyrolyzed, and so the, the gases have gone and you're left with a carbon structure which is really stable. Um, the temperature, so, when you're in a pyrolysis plant or in a large scale um, bit of technology that creates charcoal or biochar, you can manage the temperature of pyrolysis and you can manage the oxygen content and you can manage the humidity. So, you can get custom, custom tailored um, biochars that that are intended for different purposes, and I think and the car it's fascinating at the molecular level, but the carbon structures change depending on the temperature of pyrolysis, and I think some of them would be carcinogenic and some of them wouldn't potentially. Also, the type of feedstock you use would influence that. However, feeding charcoal, for example, to cattle is practiced in Australia. Um, practiced hugely in. Europe, it can be used in fish feed, in commercial aquaculture, um, if you can get your chicks, chickens to eat it it's quite good for them, it would be amazing for goats, sheep, um, all sorts of domestic stock and it means their gut health is often improved and their poo is easier to use, less smelly and has kind of got built in carbon storage. Um, so it's a really interesting realm that feed char. So there's no nutritional
0: value necessarily to the Not animal. It just goes straight through them and
1: improves gut health. So charcoal's um, superpower is sorption. It's really good at absorbing and holding things. So for example, a little bit of charcoal in molasses with horses can help them with phytotoxicity. So in spring when they're eating fresh grass and there's a lot of fungi around, they can go a bit nuts in the head like a bit a bit crazy and um a bit of charcoal can actually help their system absorb the phytotoxins or the the problematic fungi and and get it out of their system and calm them down um, so i think in the gut um for for ruminants charcoal is like a coral reef for microorganisms in the same way that it is in the soil So in the soil it's the same, it's not adding any nutrients that are available for plants but it's creating structure, a place to hold nutrients, ions um, and, and microorganisms which then, particularly in a sandy soil, means that all of that life can remain there. If you have incredibly beautiful rich soil, the addition of biochar probably won't make any apparent difference. Because you've already got clay particles and humus things, humus particles that are available to hold all the ions and exchange them with plant roots. But if you've got really poor, sandy, hungry soil, the addition of biochar can be dramatic because you're creating shelving to, to stock with all of the nutrients that the plants need and the life in the soil needs.
0: Now, I know that you've made it yourself mm. because it sort of sounds like there is a whole industry out there that's making it pitched particularly to Europe by the sounds of things.
1: It's big in Europe, yeah. So
0: we don't have that same kind of industry happening here in Australia, but this is something that we can do ourselves?
1: That's right. There is a growing um, group of biochar enthusiasts in Australia. If anyone's interested, a great place to look is a website called the International Biochar Institute, and it has a lot of information about all over the world associations and groups of people that are doing things. But to make it yourself, it really, can be really low-tech. Um, it can be very, very high-tech as well with a bazillion-dollar um, plant. But at home, basically, you just need to build a fire, <laughs> let it burn. If you want it to be not too smoky and not too toxic, you light it at the top, not the bottom. Uh, and then once it's burnt down to coals, and you can see that the coals are starting to turn to ash at the top, you put it out with water or worm juice or pig manure slurry or whatever you want. You can also cover it up with soil or manure. Some people do that. But it can take a really, really long time then to go out. Um, There's some associated risks with that. Um, But essentially you have coals and you put it out before they completely combust. Then you can step it up and be more efficient so you get more efficient capture of all of what you're burning so that you have less of it go to ash. So when we make it, typically we do it in a hole in the ground or a pit or a trench. A lot of people will use a cone kiln, so a cone or wok-shaped metal vessel or, or even a hole and what that does is it limits the amount of oxygen that gets to the bottom of the fire so that you're getting more pyrolysis less combustion so it's a very similar principle. So the way I make it is I dig a trench um, as long as the branches that I'm going to collect off the forest floor are, so maybe a metre and a half, um, I dig that maybe half a metre deep and half a metre wide so not very big I um, light a fire in the bottom of it and I have a big pile of, much, much bigger pile than I think I'm going to need next to me of branches that I've picked up from the bush that are dry. And then I get my um, dinner in some camp ovens ready over on the side because I want to use the heat from the fire to do some cooking. And then I just spend a couple of hours with, you know, beers or wine depending on the season and friends and we just keep loading up the fire. So we, we... um, load the fire up with sticks until the point where we might choke it and then we let it burn and we watch it and it collapses a bit and then the top of it starts to ash and so we load it up again with some more sticks but we don't choke it and we keep doing that until we run out of sticks or the pit is full. It takes an incredible amount of sticks to fill up a pit that size and then when the pit is full of glowing coals and it looks like most of, there's not so much unburnt wood in there we put it out with water. And that's where having a pit is also helpful because it it sort of sits in there. And we usually stir it around and pull out any unburnt chunks, uh, make sure there's no hot spots left. Um, The first time I did that, I'd stirred it around and make sure there were no hot spots left. And then we left for the weekend, came back and there was nothing in the pit. And (laughs) as you know, our place is very windy. So there must have been enough of a hot spot somewhere to reignite with with a strong breeze and the whole thing just burnt out and Aren't you glad you had it in the pit so yeah, the yeah. whole forest didn't, <laughs> didn't go out. Yeah that's right or well, we do it a long way from the forest in a big cleared area but um, yeah so really low tech really simple you can if you're having a bonfire with friends you can just at the end of the night before you go to bed and you want to put it out just do that and you'll end up with some charcoal.
0: So what do you do with it then it's in the pit do you just cover it up and leave it where it is or do you actually then scoop it out and use it in your veggie patch or yeah. in your compost or...
1: We, we always then, because we're going to use it in soil, we always want to inoculate it with life and nutrients because if you use clean, fresh char that you've just made and you put it in your garden, uh, it it's, its superpower is sorption, so it will sorb and grab nutrients and potentially hold on to them and you might actually deplete what's available in the short term for your plants. So if you're going to put it in the garden, it's really important to dose it with nutrients and if you can inoculate it with life and the easiest way to do that is put it in your compost. So typically with mine I um, shovel some out, put it in some sacks and jump on it to crush it a bit. Um, Sometimes I sift it if I want to use it in potting medium and then I mix it in with the compost and I usually only use, uh, I use it in layering, I layer up my hot compost so I might just use it in that process and maybe 10% by volume in my compost would be what it ends up as. Sometimes I will um, crush it a bit, sift it out, take the fine stuff, put it in tubs and put um, worm juice, worm castings or compost in it and keep it wet for a few weeks and stir it around to make a fairly rich brew. And I might use that in the bottom of a planting trench for something hungry in summer, pumpkins or corn or or so on. So I might use it as a a kind of soil amendment but have have it inoculated But mostly I put it into my compost so then passively it's going to get around the place when I use that.
0: Hmm. So with biochar, when you create the charcoal and then you actually put that back into the soil, that's a way of fixing carbon so that it's not going out into the atmosphere. So by utilising biochar we're actually helping and preventing climate change, yes?
1: Yes, well it's, it's a very good way to store carbon. Um, and get some benefit from it. So in the soil, there's, very, there's a whole carbon cycle, as we know, and so plants, when they die and they either make compost or they break down in the soil, the carbon from a plant's body will eventually go back into the atmosphere if it's decomposed. So compost will be short-term carbon storage. If you're lucky and your soil is well-structured and you have enough life, some of that compost carbon will turn into humus, which is a longer-lived way of carbon being in the soil so that might last in your soil for 20 or 30 years but if you've got biochar so you've cooked your dead plants and and driven off all the labile things and you have kind of this skeletal carbon if you put that in your soil it's there for as good as forever you know at least hundreds of years if not thousands so it's incredibly stable so if we are um taking waste wood or um, any, you know, power line trees that are cleared or we, we're turning anything into charcoal, a wood chip pile, um, and get that into our soil, it's not going away.
0: So the mulch and stuff that we put on the garden gardeners' wood chips, that eventually composts and that eventually ends up back yeah. in the atmosphere. But if we were to burn that and then put it in the soil, that then lasts for hundreds of years.
1: That's right. So and and having having some of all those categories is good because the yes. rapid turnover of your compost is is feeding a whole decomposer cycle and the formation of humus humus is an awesome molecule for giving lots and lots of homes for cations and and um, so your cation exchange capacity or your ability of soil to exchange nutrients with plants is really increased if you have a lot of humus. And charcoal does a similar thing. It provides lots and lots of shelving for exchange nutrients. So we need
0: all three of these in our repertoire to improve our soil health. That's
1: right. You need need the ones that, that get turned over and decomposed because if it was just charcoal, it's just like shelving. There's no goods on the shelf. So I often use the analogy with backyard gardeners that charcoal in your soil is like you need shelving. If you want to have a big pantry... You need good shelving, and then you need to go to the shop and buy the stuff to put in the pantry or grow it and put it in your pantry. And charcoal is like the shelving; it's not the goods on the shelves.
0: And the compost and the, the compost
1: is going to be giving you the goods to put on the shelves. Yeah. So,
0: that, so that's the fast food, and then the humus is the the, the healthy fast food. food. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You have to. I mean, the the point actually, the fast food is the soluble inorganic fertilizer uh-huh, because yes. that's you don't have to work for that. You just yeah. it's just like your Big Mac. Whereas a compost is like your homegrown beef and your own beans and you know the sweet corn that you grew, you've you've got to digest that to get the the goods out of it. You know. And
0: so, synthetic fertilisers, mm. uh, you know, your Big Mac junk food stuff that you put
1: on your soil, mm. what does that do to your soil? Mm. It's devastating. For a lot of different reasons, one is that it's often very soluble, so it's it dissolves in the rain or your when you're watering, and so it can wash through and If the plants don't suck it up quickly enough, it's gone or they they if your plants are a bit thirsty and the water is full of these soluble nutrients, they have to drink so they have to take up all that fast food so it can it can overly stock them with nitrogen and things that make them then really susceptible to pest attack so it's like You're really thirsty and all you have to drink is Coke. It's not good. Um, But the other thing that they do is they can put things out of balance. So the the way that the soil organisms interact with the plants is amazing, complex, beautiful and kind of way beyond our brains but it's a really exchangey thing and there's a kind of... I don't know if it sounds too woo-woo but there's a wisdom in it. So if what the plants need is a particular ion of some sort... Um, they will exude things that foster exactly the right organisms that can provide that um, particular thing that they need. Whereas if we've filled it full of synthetic fertilisers, there's no need for that exchange or that, that kind of interaction anymore because it's all just sitting there, the plants are sitting in this kind of soup of stuff that they can get easily. And so the microorganisms that would normally be the providers of those things tend to decline. So nitrogen is a great example We know that there's free-living nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the soil and there's also the ones that form a relationship with roots on legumes and make the little nodules. So they can help to fix atmospheric nitrogen from the soil and make it available to plants. But if we've put a whole lot of synthetic nitrogen in there, um, those organisms are kind of not needed and the plants don't do the things that foster those relationships anymore so they can disappear or decline so, in a nutshell, what synthetic fertilisers do is um, put things out of balance and they don't foster the intricate, intricate, complicated, um, codependent um, life community that would otherwise be there.
0: How do you make hot compost?
1: Um, you assemble a whole lot of materials and... Hot compost works best when you make a reasonable volume, a reasonably large volume, all at once. So about a cubic meter. Um, so I. So this is a project that you do one day, not something that you do a, a little bucket bit of a day, all the time. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So okay. you, you. I actually do it in a slightly hybrid way, <laughs> um, because I get about a load of um, urban food waste a week from some cafes and businesses. So each week I. Um, layer it up with um, spoiled hay or sawdust when we're milling so I I literally have my buckets of scraps and I the the way I make hot compost is I do layers of nutrient-rich stuff whether it's food scraps or fresh weeds uh, and carbon-rich stuff sawdust or hay or leaves from the the autumn trees or stalks from lavender bunches or whatever whatever is easy to get Uh, If there's animal manure around, I use that. So our first hot compost, we had a lot of wallaby poo and thistles in. (laughs) Um, Layer it up. Make sure that it's moist so you can water it as you go. You can um, put maybe a bit of molasses in, like dissolve a cup of molasses in a bucket of hot water if you want because that's got lots of micronutrients in it that can feed the the organisms that do the work. Um, I usually cover it up with old carpet, although i will stop doing that because the carpet's disintegrating and leaving bits of itself behind, so now I tend to just put a layer of bracken fern on top as a top layer and um, and go away, and a few days later, later it'll be, you know, 60-odd degrees. Um, in my system, because I'm doing a weekend session, I tend to... it will collapse quite a bit over the week, so I tend to keep layering on the same heap for maybe a month, uh, and I use wooden pallets as a... Um, border around it so I have a three-sided three pallets on the side actually four and then I I build it inside that kind of cube Uh, and then it
0: it has to be about one meter by one meter by one meter to to activate doesn't it
1: well that's about heat retention so if it's a small pile um, it can cool down quite quickly and lose lose its heat and that can slow it down I'm usually only adding maybe half half a meter or 700 mils of height to the heap in one session, depending on how much stuff I have. Um, but that that tends to heat up and then re warm what's underneath it. And then after I've done that, kind of adding half a meter or so each week for a month or so, and it kind of collapses down. and I add some more and collapses down, and eventually I fill up the space that I have, and then I leave it alone for a couple of months. I used to. I used to rigorously turn after about a month, but sometimes I don't get around to it. But I usually turn it once after a few months to mix things because the edges dry out and don't cook. Um, and then I, I used to then turn it a second time, but I don't anymore because the worms do it for me. Um, if I've turned it once, it's utterly chockers full of worms. I think because it's very nutrient rich because I'm using a lot of food waste um it's full of worms eggs and worms and so i just kind of turn it once to mix it up a bit and then leave it alone and it, you know maybe 6 months later it'll just be a pile of worm castings essentially
0: does it fire a second time after you've turned yes, it does it get it reheats again? yeah
1: it does yeah. usually yeah um again i think cuz there's still a lot of um nutrient available for and there's always in a compost heap there's a succession of organisms who kind of consume different things and so by the time it's cooled right down I have a lot of slaters there which in a home veggie garden can actually be problematic if they get to high numbers Um, but out on the farm where I do this that doesn't bother me at all and they seem to coexist with the worms I think they occupy different niches So really my only um, challenge is trying to work out when I'm harvesting it to use whether I separate the worms or just leave them be. And sometimes I'll do a cursory separation by putting uh, the week before I want to use it, I might put some fresh food on top um, of an old, old heap. Uh, If I'm really thinking I'll do it in a bread basket, one of those big bread trays, Uh, and then a lot of the worms will come up to hop into that and so then I can literally just pull off the worms by handfuls and separate them out and then use the rest of it there'll still be worms and eggs all through it but I can um, so do you do that
0: because that species of worm doesn't survive in the veggie patch when you've actually used the compost
1: yeah I'm doing it because I I want a really big Um, compost worm population to use for an ever expanding composting operation so I don't want to lose them and also I don't want them to die but we've we've used a lot of compost on our kind of garlic beds at the farm and it's always had compost worms in it and when we weed or dig in that there are compost worms surviving there so if there's enough organic matter and cover in the garden Quite often, the compost worms will survive to a degree, and they people say that if they hatch, so there's eggs that go with it, and if they they'll survive better if they hatch where they're going to live, and if there's sufficient um, organic matter there. So yeah, and there's there's quite a we have um, we're blessed with incredible populations of earthworms in our paddocks. and they're those huge grey ones, um, so they, they're there, and they're, it's easy to distinguish them from the compost worms. Yeah, yeah,
0: and the the compost worms are the little red wigglers.
1: That's right, red yeah. ones mostly. There's a couple of different species, and there is a, um, a a very desirable compost worm called the Egyptian blue, and which apparently fluoresces. Um, mm-hmm. And they're big and but they're very mobile. And I don't know whether we have them. I've got some that I suspect might be, but I, I'm not that good at identification. And <laughs> um, but they're very desirable um, as a compost worm species, apparently.
0: What's your favourite bit of produce that you grow, mm-hmm. and
1: how do you like to prepare it and eat it? Mm, it's tricky. Leeks in beetroot, and romanesco broccoli, and purple sprouting broccoli, and fresh sweet corn. So I'll pick one. It would have to be leeks or beetroot. I like to prepare leeks by picking them. Wow, I struggle with leeks because I love them so much I don't want to harvest them because I want to maximise the yield. (laughs) So I often leave them a bit too late and they're going to seed when I do harvest them. But if I have enough, I haven't grown a lot of leeks for a long time, but when I have enough, I like to harvest them when their white bit is about the size of your thumb and braise them whole in verjuice um in the oven. And they're so delicious. Um and beetroot I love uh roasted, grated raw in, in any way. Like they're I just love one of my favourite and they just sit there in the garden. You don't have to thin them like other root things. Um yeah they're you delicious. Can eat the leaves. Yeah. And golden beetroot are great to play. Tricks on people if you have purple carrots and golden beetroot and you do a roast vegetable salad. It's like they've swapped colours and roles, but they taste like themselves, so that that can be a bit of a mind messing with people's minds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I immensely enjoyed chatting to Christina. Since recording this interview, we've made a biochar pit and have just been waiting for an improvement in the weather to slowly combust our stick pile waste left over from spring. Our plan is to put it on our composting hay floor so it gradually gets inoculated over a few months before the lots then spread out on the paddock. Thank you, Christina, for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. I've learnt so much and I hope that you all have as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Curious Farmer. If you too have questions or any comments about this episode, please contact me at thecuriousfarmer at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe. If you can, rate and review it. It keeps me going and makes it easier for other people to find. Till next time.